As I spend a little bit of time reflecting on current events and the task before me this morning, there were a few things that came to mind for me. And I just want to say them right at the very beginning of this sermon. The first thing I want us to be reminded of is, is this. America is not the center. America is not the center. It's not the center of the world, and it's not the center of the church. Yes, we must lament evil. Yes, we must feel the sadness and the pain of the division that exists in America. But when we come to God's word, God's word decenters our countries and places of origin. And it centers Jesus and his kingdom. And all those who claim him as their Lord must have this in mind because it shapes the way that you exist in the world. One of the other things that was also coming to mind is the realization that in these times, we as American Christians must double down on our commitment to cross-cultural vision. And that, that not only pertains to the nature of our community that we are building, but it also pertains to the way that we understand the world, the way that we understand our faith. Christianity was not born in America. America is not the center of Christianity, as I said. We are, are a part of a global community as the church. And we are a part of a historic community as the church. And whenever we feel weak, whenever we feel like we don't know exactly how to navigate the times, you can be sure that Christians around the globe and Christians through time have shown us many different ways to endure, to persevere, to lean against the darkness, and to remain faithful to our faith even as we engage the ugliness in this world. What I'm saying is, these times remind us that we, as American Christians, need to become learners of our African brothers and sisters. We need to learn from our brothers and sisters in China, in Thailand, in Cambodia, our brothers and sisters in Nigeria, our brothers and sisters who endured in, in Russia, our brothers and sisters in Latin America. We must become learners, disciples of those who have shown us how to be faithful in the midst of loss and hardship and difficulty. And so as we come to this text for today, we are reminded of historic Christian commitments. And I'm really grateful that I didn't have to change my text for today in order to address you as a, a pastor who cares about you, who wants to help frame things up for you as you live in this world faithfully. I'm glad that in God's providence, his, his gift this morning, as we've been walking through the book of Philippians, we have one of the most apt texts that speaks to God's people as they exist in a world full of turmoil. 
Now, here's the deal. Our times in reality are no more tumultuous than any other time in history. They're not. But it does not change the fact that we experience these things in ways that that are difficult for us. Well, God's word speaks to it. We don't need to rely upon particular political ideologies in order to see a clear way through because God's word speaks. God speaks. God has spoken. Everything that's necessary for life and godliness is in God's word. How can you be a faithful Christian in times like these? God's word speaks. What does it look like to be faithful in our current age? God's word speaks. And so we turn to God's word this morning. And I want to hit three things from Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 through 21. Just captured in a word. I want to talk about witness. I want to talk about weeping. And I want to talk about waiting. I want to talk about witness. I want to talk about weeping. And I want to talk about waiting. So let's, let's look at our first point, witness. Verse 17 says this, brothers and sisters, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Paul leads out with a very decidedly ethical tone in this passage, but it's not disconnected from what he said to them earlier on in the letter. If you remember back to chapter one, verse 27, He said this, he said, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. He's talking about conduct. He returns to that conduct and he says, you actually have human examples of this conduct. Most profoundly in Jesus. And in the ways that you can follow me as I follow Christ and you can follow other brothers and sisters who are living this out. And if you remember back to the language of chapter 1, verse 27, Paul used political language that was known in the world at the time. Politueste. When he says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Conduct yourselves is a political word. It means live as citizens. And if you remember, we talked about the fact that Roman citizenship was everything to people in this world at this time. They took a lot of pride in their Roman citizenship. And in Philippi, they were a Roman colony. They were a military outpost. And people there, even though they weren't, they weren't living in Rome, they were Roman citizens. And they took their citizenship seriously. They knew they had all the rights and the privileges of Roman citizens. And the vision that Rome had was this. Rome was committed to spreading Roman culture and Roman values all over the world. And the way in which they accomplished that was through planting cities and outposts all around the world and by expecting, by calling their citizens to live as Roman citizens in their various locations. They expected to spread Roman culture and values by calling their citizens to faithfulness as Roman citizens, calling them to be true Roman citizens. The Philippians were expected to live their lives according to Roman cultural orthodoxy. And so Paul hijacks that category and he says, but you, you have a greater citizenship. 
I know that Rome is planting cities all around the world, but you need to understand that God is planting his people. He's planting churches all around the world, and he's doing that in order to spread kingdom values and kingdom culture and kingdom commitments all around the world. But the way in which it happens is when God's people live as citizens of the kingdom. He talks about this. And in our text for today, he's tapping back into that as he calls them to a particular way of life. He's talking about how your orthodoxy, your right thinking is supposed to issue in orthopraxy, right living. There's to be no separation between right thinking and right living. He has covered this big passage about the greatness and the glory of Christ in chapter 2. He's talked about righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, not through your own performance. And now he says, it's good to believe all those things. It's true and right, but this is the way you must live as a result of those faith commitments. It must issue in righteous living. He's saying that we must be true to our citizenship so that the people around us may get a little bit of heaven, may taste a little bit of glory in the way that we live, in their, in, their, in their witness to who we are, the way that we bear witness to God's kingdom, the way that we bear witness to God's love is by living as citizens together. You must live according to kingdom values and kingdom commitments. He's talking about witness here. Remember, the entire series is called Working Together for the Gospel. That's what this letter is really aimed at accomplishing, getting these folks to live together in love so that they can work together for the gospel. And here's the deal. For you and, you and I in this cultural moment, in this cultural context, we must consider these things. By our Christian profession, we bear witness to the fact that every person has dignity and value because they have been created in God's image for God's glory. We bear witness to these things as citizens of heaven. By our Christian profession, we bear witness to the fact that every person is broken and without hope of fixing the brokenness through their own devices. We bear witness to these things as kingdom citizens. By our Christian profession, we bear witness to the great love of God for broken sinners like us. We bear witness to these things by living as citizens of the kingdom. By our Christian profession, we bear witness to the saving work of Jesus Christ in which he went to the cross as a substitute to atone for our sins by dying in our place and on our behalf. We We bear witness to this by living as kingdom citizens. By our profession, we bear witness to the fact that Jesus rose from the grave. He conquered the forces of evil and darkness. And we now have access to that very power in our individual lives and in our communities. And we bear witness to that by living as citizens of the kingdom. By our Christian profession, we bear witness to one Lord one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all his people. 
We bear witness to this by living as kingdom citizens. And by our Christian profession, we bear witness to the recreative work of Christ in which he has made us one body, one family, one communion, and one new humanity. That's that's what living as citizens, that's what following Paul's ethical example is aimed at accomplishing. We must bear witness in a world of darkness and despair to the truth of our faith. We have the resources in our faith, and that is something else we bear witness to by living as citizens. He's, he's, aiming, at, he's aiming at an ethical transformation for the sake of gospel witness. But something else I want you to see in this text is weeping. Weeping. Paul says in verse 18, he talks about the positive example, and then he talks about negative examples in their community. For many, verse 18, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, I want you to pay attention to Paul's response to his opponents and their evil. Keep in mind, these were people who claimed to be Christians. These were people who at some level identified as Christians, but by their way of life, they betrayed everything that the Christian faith is about. They are summarized as enemies of the cross by virtue of their broken ethic and their stinking thinking. These are people who identified as Christians, but I want you to see Paul's response. He didn't allow bitterness to take root. He didn't allow the evil out there to produce more evil in here. He didn't allow bitterness to take root. He didn't return hatred on his opponents. He didn't revel in their blindness. He didn't turn his words against the entire church and distance himself from the church. He clearly identified the root of his opponent's evil biblically, and then he wept over their sinful way of life. That's Paul's response. He clearly identified the root of their evil biblically, and then he wept over their sinful way of life. It broke his heart that they were walking as enemies of the cross. It broke his heart that their actions revealed no need for the cross. It broke his heart that their actions revealed no sense of value for the cross. It broke his heart that their actions revealed no sense of allegiance to the cross. The cross that produces one new humanity. The cross that produces one body. The cross that produces one family. It broke his heart that their way of life contradicted everything that the cross was about. As he spells it out, it broke his heart. It broke his heart that they were headed for destruction. It broke his heart that they were ruled by their own evil desires. It broke his heart that they, that they gloried in their shameful way of life. It broke his heart that they had their minds fixed on earthly things that would not last. And in inviting his friends to imitation in verse 17, 
and directly speaking to them of his tears over these enemies of the cross, he's inviting them to a broken heart. He's inviting them to a broken heart. Why? Why? Here's why. Because you will do little of importance about the evil in this world until it breaks your heart. You will do little about the evil in this world until it breaks your heart. You won't do anything of substance about it until it breaks your heart. Here's the deal. You will either respond in one of three ways without a broken heart. Here's what you'll do. You'll either, one, retreat into passivity in isolation, distance yourself from it, bury your head in the sand, not speak on it, back away from it, live in fear of even dealing with it. You can retreat in isolation and passivity. Two, you could live in a constant state of rage and aggression, spewing your anger out at everyone else, lighting the world on fire, accosting everyone verbally, using your words to hurt and tear down, holding out no hope of redemption or resurrection, restoration to anyone, causing the pain in here to be shared out there verbally. That's the other response. You could, you could retreat into passivity and isolation, or you could live in a constant state of rage and aggression. The third thing you could do is just make friends with evil and try to figure out a way to downplay it so that you don't have to deal with it. Ah, you know, this is the broken world we live in. What are you going to do? But neither, none of these options are Christian options. Y'all, y'all hear me. None of these options are Christian options. This is not how our faith instructs us to respond in evil days. We don't retreat in passivity. We don't live in a constant state of rage and aggression. That counts for social media too, by the way. Nor... Do we downplay it or make friends with it or excuse it? That's not the Christian response. Mature Christian response to enemies of the cross is most characterized by brokenheartedness. Why? Why? Here's why. In a sinful world, brokenheartedness is the companion of love. Brokenheartedness is the companion of love in a sinful world. What that means is this. Brokenheartedness is a sign that your heart is disposed toward love. You can only be broken if you are open to love. If your heart is balled up, if it's clenched up, if it's cold and hard, sure, it may not be broken, but it is not free to love. The only way you can love is if you make yourself vulnerable to the hurt and pain of the world. And the ability to enter in in brokenheartedness is a sign that you are freeing yourself up to love. This is cruciform love. Yes, they may kill you, but the call is love. 
Yes, they may wound you and afflict you, but the call to the Christian community, the call to citizens of heaven is love. Why? Because that's the way of Jesus. That's the way of the cross. It's a hard message. Yes, it's hard to love enemies. Yes, it's hard to love those who denigrate you. Yes, it's hard to keep your heart in a place where it's constantly assailed. But is this not the way of Jesus who opened himself up to these very pains, to these very sufferings? If you are going to live as a citizen, then you cannot exempt yourself from entering into the messiness of the evil and and the brokenness in this world, the divisiveness. In our latest iteration, white supremacy, ethnic strife, racial division, all of this stuff. This is why I said at the beginning of the service that our cross-cultural commitment is not window dressing. This is our commitment because it's on the heart of God and it's part of his design for who his people are and who his people are becoming. This is the end of the story. This is it. And our discomfort now in pursuing that vision is only fitting us for glory. This is the call to us. In a sinful world, brokenheartedness is the companion of love. And God's people are to be a people formed by love. Listen, it's like the parent's heart breaks over a child addicted to drugs. It's like that kind of heartbreak. It's only because of the deep love that the heart can break. It's like a spouse's heart breaks over over cheating and betrayal in a relationship. The only reason why it can break so much is because of the deep love that's there. In a similar way, the Christian heart, the Christian response is brokenness about the evil out there. It's brokenness because we are a people conceived in love, born, reborn in love, formed and fashioned in love, sustained by love. And because of that, we should be the kind of people that is brokenhearted about the evil in the world, not isolating ourselves from it, not living in a constant state of rage over it, and not excusing it, but broken over it. Our hearts should break when we see people living as enemies of the cross because we're a people of love. We of all people, listen to me, we of all people should recognize that the evil we witness in the world is a refusal to live in the embrace of God's love and to live by extending God's love. It's a refusal of love. Our hearts should break. It's like the parent who who is thinking to the child, why won't you let me love you? Why won't you receive my love? It's like the spouse. Why won't you receive my love? It's that kind of heartbrokenness. We see that the evil out there is the response of rejecting God's love. And it should break our hearts. It should break our hearts when we see the disparity between the ugly that humanity chooses and the beauty that could be theirs through union with Christ. It should break our hearts. And before we rush to defend our hard-heartedness toward evil people, we must ask, 
Did not Jesus weep over me when I was mired in my evil ways with an evil heart? Didn't his heart break for me when I was spiritually blind and deaf and astray? And weren't those tears the result of his great love for me and how much it pained him to see me living in a prison of my own making? Was that not his response? And did not that love lead him to do something about it? This is the point. The mature response is brokenheartedness that leads to action. Brokenheartedness that leads to constructive action. That is why the broken heart is so important because you won't do anything of any substance in pushing back the darkness until you have the broken heart that leads to action. He did something about it. Jesus is the model for us here, and that's what Paul's saying. Be a fellow imitator with me. Paul's not primarily saying follow me. He's saying imitate with me that one primary ethical example, the life that Jesus lived in making himself vulnerable. Do you realize that Jesus even made himself vulnerable to loving the people that hung him there on the cross? Yes, that's the kind of love to which we're called citizens of heaven. This is why the Christian faith has unique resources for dealing with this kind of difficulty that we face in these days. It's the only paradigm that says where sin abounds, grace superabounds. It's the only paradigm that says while I was still a sinner, while I was still like those folks, he loved me and gave himself for me to make me his own. It's the only paradigm that calls you to love your enemies. And that is the degree of love to which we are called. But let me, let me take us to our last point, waiting. Verses 20 through 21, look at the text. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Now, at first sight, it seems like Paul is saying there's evil. So we're waiting until we can escape and go off to live in heaven where we belong. But that's not what, what Paul is saying, and that is not what Paul means. If someone in Philippi said, we are citizens of Rome, they wouldn't then say, and we're looking forward to going to live in Rome. No, that's not their understanding. That they understood that as citizens... They were called to root and work as Romans, spreading Roman culture and Roman values in the place where they were located. It actually worked the other way around. Their task in a place like Philippi was to bring Roman culture and values to bear in that place to expand Roman influence there. But here's the deal. There would be times when, when, when there would be uprisings and rebellion when their enemies that surrounded them would press in on them, when life in their little colony would seem crazy and out of control, times where they felt helpless against the attacks of the barbarians surrounding them. 
There were times where they felt like there was nothing that they could do. How would they cope? They knew that the king himself, the emperor, the king himself, who was called savior at the time, that's what they called the Roman king. They called him savior or rescuer. They knew that in those times, he would come from Rome to Philippi to change their present situation. They might feel defenseless right now, but the king was coming and he would put an end to the rebellion. He would deal with the opponents. He would deal with the enemies. He would make things right. And their job was to remain faithful as Roman citizens as they awaited the king's coming to make it right. And in a similar way, Paul is saying to his friends in Philippi, yes, you have opponents. Yes, there are people who are pressing in trying to cause you despair, trying to push you off of our faith, trying to lead you to live in a hopelessness. But I want you to know that we as citizens of heaven, we await a savior, the true king, and he is going to come and make things right. He's going to come and deal with the opponents. He's going to come and bring renewal. He is going to make good on all of his promises. He is going to make sure the work you do matters into eternity. So, as you wait, live as faithful citizens. Live as faithful citizens. He has the power to subject all things. You see that? He has the power to subject all things to himself by his authority. This is Paul's picture. Our confident hope is that the king of heaven, Jesus himself, will come from heaven and change all of this brokenness. And I want to make something clear. This is not pie-in-the-sky escapism. I've already addressed that. Isolation and withdrawal is not a Christian response. This is not pie-in-the-sky. Someday we're all going to float off the glory. This is the promise. This is the guarantee that anything that we do on this earth as his people, as citizens, matters. This is the guarantee. He's going to finish the job. Yes, we work for a, for a more beautiful world, but you would have no hope of that being accomplished without this promise that we await a savior. We work for harmony. We work for unity. We work for the beauty of familial dynamics here, but you would have no hope of that actually coming to pass if you did not await a savior. This is the guarantee. The resurrection is the receipt. He paid the bills for this at Calvary, for this communion life, for this kind of corporate dynamic. And it's because we have that we can work, we can labor without despair, without hope. We can lament in hope. We can name the evil and say, there is an expiration date on you. I await a savior. They may kill us. They may come for us. They may denigrate us. They may say we have no value. They may call what we do foolishness. They may say, what's the purpose in trying to build a cross-cultural community? Let's just all retreat into our own individual worlds and live in division. But we say, no, we await a savior. And we're going to anticipate that day when all the saints will gather around and sing glory to the Lamb. We're going to be a foretaste of that glory. We're going to be an appetizer of eternity. That's how we are going to press on. 
That message of pressing on pertains to this cross-cultural community. This message of pressing on comes stamped with the guarantee that we await a savior. Will you await him? When you look around at the evil, will you counter that evil with this? I await a savior. So now I can work. I can throw myself into it. I can stand face to face with evil, stare it down and press through it. I'm going to be an active participant in seeing this evil pushed back, the darkness mowed down because we are the salt and light of the world. And one day, There will be no more darkness because the lamb will be the light and he will scatter the darkness. By his power, friends, he will subject white supremacy, ethno-nationalism, division and racial conflict to himself. One day we will see all of those evils dead at the feet of King Jesus. That's the guarantee. And that is our hope. That is our confidence. And knowing this will enable you to, chapter 4, verse 1 of Philippians, stand firm in the Lord. Don't retreat from the Christian faith. If you are under the impression that the Christian faith does not have the resources to handle these days, then I'm going to be honest with you. You have not yet begun to explore it. It may take some listening to the church in Africa. It may take some listening to the church in Japan and and China and Thailand. It may take some listening to the church in India. It may take some listening to the church that sees Boko Haram coming through, killing their people, and they remain steadfast. You know why? Here's why. Because they're like Abraham. In Hebrews 11, I like this. I like this, yo. We are citizens of heaven. And this is, this is what the writer of Hebrews says about Abraham. I, I just, I love this text. Look at this. Verse 13 of chapter 11. Write this down and think on this. These all died, all these people of faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. They weren't looking for all of their hope in somehow America getting on the right track. They weren't placing all their hope in their country's ability to meet all of their felt needs. No, they greeted these things from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth for people who speak in this way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out they would have had opportunity to return to go back but as it is here it is friends as it is they desire a better country that is a heavenly one Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. When you know that there is a better country awaiting you, you can press on as a good citizen in this country. When you know that a better city awaits you, you can work in this city for the common good, fighting for the true, the good, and the beautiful. Do you see what we have here? 
This is our faith. This is the historic faith. This is what Christians all through history have done in the face of evil. And this is the global faith. This is what Christians all around the world to this day are dealing with. Will you identify with the global community of faith that knows that they are awaiting a savior? That's our calling this morning. And be reminded again of the importance of what we are doing here as a cross-cultural church. How can you respond? Here are some concrete ways. Be faithful in this little cross-cultural church of ours. Be faithful to look for new people who come through these doors. Make it a part of your life liturgy that you are constantly moving toward people who are not like you, who do not share your, your experiences or your convictions or your family upbringing. Acknowledge the created value in those folks who are different from you. And ask yourself the question, what is the peculiar beauty that God has created here in this image bearer that I can benefit from? And how can I more beautifully unite my life with theirs as we both unite our life in Christ? Don't cruise around to the same little relationships. It's easy, even in a cross-cultural church, to find the people who are like you. And then you have a veneer of being cross-cultural, but not the substance. Y'all hear me? This is important. This is how you live it out. Another thing, if you lament Charlottesville but remain detached and passive locally, then you're only about the cosmetics of it. If you lament it online and on social media but you're not about it here, then you're just about the cosmetics of the cross-cultural. Know that to be a citizen of the kingdom is to be about the substance of it. Maybe there are some emails you need to send today to say, hey, I realize I've passed you every Sunday for years and I need to get to know you because we are different. And that's part of the beauty of what God is doing in the world and in the church. He's working us together to teach us how to love. I'm gonna stop there, but I want you to begin to dispel some of the national despair that you feel by going on the news outlets all the time and soaking it in and spend more time working locally, loving locally than you spend absorbing everything that's going on in national news. Spend more time with the good news than you spend with the daily news. If you're more versed in the daily news than you are in the good news, then you will not be a positive actor in the fight and resistance against evil. We are the people of resurrection hope. Let's pray that hope into our midst and live together in love and create the kind of community where everyone can bring their honest broken heart and receive mercy and grace and transforming power through the gospel. Amen?